I would like to begin where Pastor D ended up last week, so I'd like for you to be over in Hebrews chapter 12, but I want to ask you a question as you're turning, so you can turn or use your phone, device, whatever it may be, but I want to ask you this question. Have you ever thought that you were too far gone? I'll say that again for the folks that are joining us on Facebook Live and YouTube and all of that. I want to ask you that same question. Have you ever thought that you were just too far gone? I, and being a pastor, I've come across people all the time and they say, Pastor, you just don't know what I've done. And if you, if you knew, you would know that, that God can't possibly forgive me or I can't possibly have a relationship with God. And There's been times in my own experience growing up as a Christian, very early on and making mistakes and thinking, okay, I think I've done it this time. <laughs> I think I've gone too far. I've, I've done too, too much. And I just don't know if, if God can, can forgive me this go around. And I think we also have to look at that question when it applies to other people. Because as much as I think we hope that we're never too far gone, right? You always hope that you're not too far gone we tend to treat others like they are. Like the criminal that's been convicted and is in prison right now. Are they too far gone? The, the person who's awaiting trial for a heinous crime, are they too far gone? What about the person that's caught up in the, the latest and greatest scandal of the day? Are they too far gone? <laughs> Some of you are smiling and saying no because you know how far God went, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so if I can begin where Pastor D left off, when we make these tragic mistakes, when we, we make these things, they feel like epic fails, and we're wondering what is God's attitude? We've got to go to Hebrews 12 so that you understand the nature and the heart of God. And here's what it says in Hebrews 12. I believe we'll have this up on the screen. I'm reading from the New American Standard. It says, but He disciplines us for our good. You see that word, He disciplines. You see, God doesn't have to punish because he's a good father. I know that the world punishes. That's the system of the world. And we think that that's the nature of God. But God, when he can speak for himself, he says this. But he disciplines who? Us. Why? For our good. This is a father who is disciplining us for our good. I love the story Pastor D shared about his daughter and this process of discipline. And I love when Chris Eifert shares about his his kids, because I want us as a people to understand that the heart that you see in the fathers of this church is representative of the heart of God. That's where they got that heart from. It came from God. And it says, so that we may share in His holiness. Man, we did a whole series on holiness. Do you remember that? Holiness comes from this root, which means to be made whole. The only person who has ever been perfect and completely whole is God. But He is drawing us to Himself saying, I want you to be like me. So when you mess up, I'll discipline you because I'm wanting you to be more like me. 
I don't want you to continue in your ways. Now, I'm going to switch over to the Passion Translation. We're in Hebrews 12. Still, we're moving on to verse 11. In the Passion Translation, it says this. Now, all discipline seems more painful than pleasure at the time. Ooh, can anybody say amen? Mm, I circled pain. <laughs> now, all discipline seems to be more pain than pleasure at the time. Yet later, it will produce a transformation of character, bringing a harvest of righteousness and peace to those who yield to it. Here's the thing we have to realize, and it's why if you had been through a culture, as most of us have, where when people do things wrong, we like to punish them, and we experience that pain, then when we experience the pain of discipline, we think God is punishing us. And I will tell you that discipline and punishment share in that. They're both painful. Can I tell you that discipline is painful? When you realize that you have messed up, when you have sinned, it is a painful thing. And sometimes the, the discipline of God is, is equally as, as painful. But I will tell you this, and we cannot move on. I told Chris Gaddy this morning, I said, I feel like I'm putting down shellac. And if you've ever seen an instrument before, a guitar or a, a violin or whatever it may be, they put these fine coats on layer upon layer, building it up. It's why they look so beautiful and they have that rich texture. It's because it's, it's being layered on coat after coat. And I said, I feel like that's what God is doing in us. It's that we're having to let go of this punishment mindset. And we're having to, to feel and hear about the restoration of God one layer at a time as it builds up and it becomes convincing to us. God's trying to convince you that He's a good Father. And that his desire is not to hurt you, but to bring you to repentance. To bring you to a place of restoration. And so I thought, where could I go to get the most detailed look at repentance and restoration? So I want you to go to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And I want to take you to the life of David. When you go to the life of David, 2 Samuel chapter 12, most of you have probably heard this story but if there are any of you who have not, you can read about David's fall in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Here's the, the skinny on the story. David is king. It's fighting time. It's when the kings are supposed to go out and do battle. But David doesn't go out. Instead, David decides to go out on his rooftop. And out there is a woman named Bathsheba who is bathing and he likes what he sees. And he calls her to his house where he commits adultery. Is David too far gone? But that's not the, the full story though, right? He didn't just stop at adultery because he got her pregnant. And now this is a huge embarrassment about to come to the throne and to the king. And so what does he do? He finds out that her Husband is a, a soldier. His name is Uriah. And so he, he tries to get Uriah to sleep with his wife, and he can't. And so he devises a scheme. Anybody ever sin, and all of a sudden you realize you got caught, and now you start trying to fix this thing, and you make it worse? Yeah. 
he makes it worse. He calls Uriah into battle and he has everybody move back to so Uriah is fighting all by himself and there Uriah is killed. But I tell you, Uriah wasn't killed. Uriah was murdered. David is an adulterer who, who has now become a murderer. Is he too far gone? Hmm. And so here David is in this condition and you imagine he's trying to fix this thing some of you know what I'm talking about. I've made a mess. I got to cover it up. I got to make sure nobody sees it. I got to make sure nobody knows. I got to try to fix this thing as best as possible. And God calls the prophet Nathan to come to David. That's where we pick it up in verse uh, in chapter 12. So Nathan comes to David. God sends Nathan not to punish David but to turn his heart. The whole point of this thing is that, that God wants to turn David's heart back to God. Now, I assume that God gave Nathan this story because it's brilliant. Nathan comes in and he starts telling the story to David. David thinks this, he thinks this thing really happens. Nathan's telling the story. He says, David, you're not going to believe this, but there was this rich man. Had so many sheep. One day this rich man's friend comes and this rich man decides that he needs to feed his guest. But David, he doesn't take any of the many sheep that he has. David, he goes over to a man that only has one little lamb. To a man that has taken this lamb and he's nurtured it and he's raised it as his own. He takes that man's lamb and he feeds his friend from that man's lamb. David is irate. If you look at verse 5 of chapter 12, it says, Then David's anger burned greatly against this man. <laughs> I look at that and I think, Oh my Lord, David, who do you think you are? <laughs> did you forget what you did, David? It said, David's anger burned greatly against this man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely this man who has done this deserves to die. David's ready to kill him. And he says he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and he had no compassion. And Nathan looks at David as I would look at Jeff. Jeff was taking notes, not just looking at him. Nathan looks at David and he says, David, you're the man. story was about David. That's what David did. He looks at David and he says, you want to get mad? <laughs> you want to be irate? You want somebody to die? You want somebody to fix something? David, you're the man. <laughs> My voice gets quivery right there. <laughs> David's heart broke in an instant. His, his heart broke. And I don't want to move past this point too quickly because it never seems to fail that when we are dealing with sin in our own life, we still find a way to be righteously indignant at other people's sin. You ever notice that? I wonder if it's a cover-up. I wonder if we get so mad at other people's sin it's because we think that if we can make their sin worse than ours, maybe we won't feel as bad. 
Maybe we won't have to think about our sin if we'll focus on everybody else's sin. Can I tell you that the discipline and the correction of the Lord will never happen if you keep looking at everybody else's junk? There's some place where the Word of God has to come to you and say, hey, guess what? You the man. Hey, you the woman. We're not talking about anybody else right now. God says, I need a moment with you. And in David's heart, broke over this word. And I will tell you that that is what God is always trying to do. His first effort to reach you is through His word. Somebody ought to put that down in your notes. Let me tell you a story. So my sisters are older than me, so they got to go through the disciplinary process with my parents before I did. I'm the baby. In fact, they're almost grown by the time I came along. One day, I remember a conversation where they said to my parents, why didn't you ever spank Kevin? <laughs> See, there they are, trying to blame somebody. Yeah. Why, why didn't you ever spank Kevin? Like you, I don't know if my parents spanked them or not. I don't know how much I, you know, I was young, I wasn't worried about it. But one day I went to... Didn't bother me. Uh, I, one day I was with my dad, and I said, Dad, I really don't even remember when you spanked me. He said, I don't really remember it either, but your sisters remind me that I did. And uh, I said, why, why did you never spank me more? He said, well, son, he said, I would sit you down and talk to you. And he said, when I talked to you, I'd under, I could look at you and I could tell that you were hearing my words and your heart would change. He said, so when your heart changed, it didn't seem necessary to spank you or punish you because I got what we were going for. Your heart changed. Is that good? Woo, I never forgot that. In fact, Caden, I'm going to tell a story on you, son. That's what we do around here. We tell stories about our kids. So Caden is about three or four years old. You remember this story? Caden's only spanking I figured that, you know, the Bible said to spoil the rod was to something. Yeah. I thought, oh, Lord, I ought to spank him at least once. Just... <laughs> I should spank him once just, just to, you know, say I did, you know. And, and, and so he was three. And we were outside, and I was watering something. And I watched Caden get the hose, and I turned the hose on, and I watched the devil form in his face. You ever seen that when you just watch evil form in your children's heart? He's holding this thing, and you can tell he's getting ready to let me hold it, and he's smiling now. Quit smiling. And, and, and he soaks me, just soaks me before I can get the water turned off. And I was mad, and I did not discipline him at that moment. Mm -mm, nope, this was punishment. I was going to spank him till I felt better. But I didn't have any experience in it, so I wasn't any good at it. So I get in there to do it, and I don't have the nerve for it. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I've never been spanked. I don't know how you do it. Or when I was spanked, I was too young. I don't know how to do this. But we're going to do it. And so I spank him. And then I explained to him what he did wrong. And he's like three or four years old. And I could watch his heart turn. And then about a month later, he came to me and he said, Daddy, 
I'll never forget the way you say that. He said, Daddy, Daddy, I'm sorry. I'm like, son, what are you sorry for? Daddy, I'm, I'm sorry I soaked you. I said, son, it's, I said, son, it's okay. I said, listen, that's over. I said, we're, we're done with that. We're, we're good. A couple months later, Daddy, Daddy, I'm sorry. I said, son, what are you sorry for? I done forgot again. <laughs> he said, sorry I soaked you. This thing went on until he was about five years old. It went on for like two years. And one day, he would just randomly say, Daddy, I'm sorry. And so one day I, I said, this is ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, son, come here. And I sat him down and I said, son. I said, that happened a long time ago. I said, we took care of that. I said, you understand what you did? I said, I've forgiven you. And I tried to give him as big a hug as I could possibly give him and hold him as long as a five-year-old would hold him. And I'm like, son, I don't remember this. You're the one that keeps bringing it up. Hmm? Mm -hmm. I said, you keep bringing it up. I said, I'm done. I've moved on. I've forgiven you. I said, son, will you promise me something? He said, what, daddy? I said, will you please not ever ask me that again? God wants to turn you with His Word. And when your heart yields to the truth, He says, you know what is done. You're forgiven. Now let's move on. And how many people are holding on to something, going to God, saying, Daddy, I'm sorry. And God, I believe, would want to say to you, have you turned? Because He never soaked me again. Never happened. <laughs> he turned. God said, you've turned. You've changed. I'm not remembered anymore. Would you please not bring it up? So here is David. His heart is broken instantly when Nathan shares this story with him and he pins a psalm. I want to read it to you. I want to read the whole thing. It's a little bit long. I pray you'll bear with me. It's about 19 verses or so. But I want to read you all of, it is Psalm 51. You ought to write that down. If you ever need to know what repentance looks like, read Psalm 51. This is the heart of someone whose heart has been broken by the Word of God, they have been sorrowful. As it says uh, in Scripture, they have had godly sorrow. Godly sorrow that brings them to a place that they're ready to turn. Let's read it. I think this thing is, it is an absolutely beautiful psalm. Like I said, I want to read it all, okay? David pins this and he says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you're justified when you speak and you're blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. And in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and, sh and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. 
Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. And then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, and then the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I'd give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the righteous sacrifices in burnt offering and whole burnt offerings. The young bulls will be offered on your altar. Woo! That's what a repentant heart sounds like. That's what godly sorrow sounds like. That's what it feels like when you hear me read it. That's somebody whose heart has been broken by the Word of God. They know what they did. Let's run through it just a little bit so you can see some of the parts of it. God calls out to the very nature of God. What nature? (laughs) That God is gracious. He appeals to God's grace. He appeals to His loving kindness. He, he appeals to his compassion. David knows God in the Old Testament like we ought to know Jesus in the New. Yeah, David just knows God. It's like he got this inside scoop that other people were missing. Other people saw God as a punisher and vengeful. And God cries out and says, God, I just thank you for your loving kindness. I just thank you for your compassion. He he calls out the true nature of God. What does David need? Mm. You ever done something and just felt dirty? Like when you did it, you you just felt dirty. And you don't know how to get clean. But you just feel nasty and you feel like everybody can see the dirtiness on you. Everywhere you walk, you're like, I think they know. I think they know. I think they know. And you don't know how to get clean of it. And that's why you hear David crying out in this psalm, wash me, cleanse me. Verse 7, purify me. Hide your face from me. Oh, I love that one. David says, God, would would you... Let's look at it. It is verse... I lost my verse. Nine. Hide your face. What does he say? Not from me, but from my sin. So many people think that when they sin, God is going to hide His face from them. They feel like He's hiding from them. But David realizes something that many of us should understand. God didn't turn from David. David turned from God. The reason David couldn't see God's face is because David had turned his face. And now he's pleading for God. God, I want you to turn your face but I I want you to turn it from my sin. I don't want you to see my sin. I want you to look on my sin. That is what forgiveness does. 
is it turns from the transgression. Wow. Verse 3 and 4, David doesn't make any excuses. That's when you know when someone is truly sorry. When someone is genuinely repentant, is they stop making excuses. If you're still full of excuses, your heart hadn't turned, I'm sorry. If you're still blaming people, you're not repenting. You don't have godly sorrow yet. If, until you get to the place that you cannot blame anybody else, David looks at God and says, God, against you and you alone, I have sinned. It's me. I'm the man, God. It's me. Until you can do that, if there is blame, if there is, is blame shifting, if there is the making of excuses, I would say you're not there yet. Keep praying that God would bring you to repentance. And then he feels like his bones are crushed. <laughs> you ever felt like that? That the weight of your sin is so heavy that you feel like you can't breathe? You feel like you're going to be crushed by the weight of your sin? And David cries out in verse 10. He says, God, I, I need a clean heart. I can't do it. That, that's where you got to get to the place where you say, I can't do this. I need a clean heart. And the only way I'm going to get a clean heart is if, God, you give me one. So, God, would you give me a clean heart? Will you clean, cleanse my heart? And will you renew a steadfast spirit? How many people, when they think they've gone too far, are crying out and saying, God, if you would just renew me to where I was before I did that stupid thing. <laughs> can, can you just take me back before I did it? And the reality is, most of the time you can't unring a bell. You can't undo what you've done. But there is this beautiful thing that Jesus does on the cross. It is called justification. And by the cross we are justified, which means He takes us back to a place of standing before God as though you've never done it. Just as if I had never sinned. He says, renew my spirit. And then, now I can ask you the question and I'll give you the answer. Have you ever gone too far? If you turn, no. Because listen to what it says. He says, do not cast me away. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So many people, they hear that quietness from God and they think, oh no, God left me. I can't hear Him. I can't hear His Word anymore. Am I just preaching to myself or has anybody ever felt that? I can't hear him anymore. I think he left me. And I don't know if he'll ever return in yours crying out, God, don't take your spirit from me. Don't take your spirit from me. Can, can I tell you that once again, it is not that God has taken his spirit from us or that he has turned his eye from us. It is that we have departed from his word. And after you have departed from the word enough, you can't hear his voice. See, when you're listening to other things, you can't hear the voice of God. When you're listening to the world, when you're listening to the devil, when you're listening to sin, the reason you can't hear God is because other things are too loud. It's not because God has taken His Spirit from you. Can I tell you, His mercies are new every day. If you would but yield, turn back to God. And then He says, restore me and deliver me. So I want to I make sure you understand the restoration process because one day you may need it for yourself or one day you may need it for someone you love. Or one day you may need it for someone who has hurt you. 
And that'll be the hardest one. The one that's hurt you. It's to, I told Chris Getty as, as part of this morning when we were talking, I said, I want it to be our natural reaction that when someone hurts us or when someone does something wrong, our natural reaction is not to punish them, but to restore them. That it's our knee-jerk reaction. Wouldn't that be an amazing knee-jerk reaction? That when somebody does something wrong and everybody else is trying to find a special place in hell for that person, you go to them and say, you know what? I'd like to help you walk out restoration. If you'll repent, I'll help restore you. I think as Christians, we ought to be the ones running to the people who have done things wrong. We ought to be reading the paper. We ought to be finding the people who have gotten caught in scandal and sin. And we ought to be the one running, just like Nathan, saying, you know what? It's your mess. It's your mess. But God can restore it. And I want to help you. I want to help you. What does restoration look like? Real quick. One, it often involves consequences. If you steal money, you're probably going to lose your job. You may end up with some legal action against you. And once that ball starts rolling, that's a whole nother system that no longer we have control over, right? And so a lot of times we're blaming God and we go, God, He's just punishing me. He sent me to jail or he, he, I lost my... No, you stole money. You did it. You're the reason you lost your job. You were drinking. That's why you lost your family. You were doing drugs. That's why you lost everything. But God can... Come in. And God can begin to move. <laughs> and God can begin to restore. And I think there's plenty of people in this room that would say, God can take what was meant for evil and work it for good. Yeah. That, that God can take your own stupidity and He can turn it and make something out of it that you you're like, I didn't even see that coming. I didn't even know He could do that. You know? Like, I didn't even know that option was available. Yeah, But here's the thing, when we restore, we also have to put some protective measures in place so that you don't get to keep hurting people. Do you understand that? Christians, we go and we want to restore people, but if someone's hurting somebody, we have to look at them honestly and say, you can't do that anymore. And we're not going to allow it. We're not going to let you continue to hurt people. If you are harming your wife, you got to stop, bro. You, you got you to get out. You got to get out until this process works and we can trust you again. We forgive you instantly, but you got to earn trust. That's your job. We want to help you earn it back. If you have done things wrong, if you're, if you're a pastor and, and pastors get caught in sin, and the first thing we do is we fire them, what I think we ought to do is we ought to remove them out of that situation. And we ought to say, we're going to put some things in place so you can't hurt anybody again. But you know what we want to do, Pastor? We want to restore you. Public officials, when they, when they do things, we say, you know what? We can't allow you to hurt anybody anymore, but we want to restore you. And we're going to put some things in place. And then what we're trying to get to is verse, verse 6. Behold, you desire truth in your innermost being. People 
sin because of this brokenness of sin in our lives. And until we get to that place and confront the sin with truth, that person's always going to be broken. So we don't just look at people and go, oh, you know what, it's fine. It's no problem. Don't you worry about it. That is not what Christians are saying. What we're saying is, you know what, it is a problem. I, I, I used to say that. People would do things, and I'll say, oh, it's no problem. And then God said, Kevin, you're lying. It is a problem. And you need to tell them that it's a problem. And we need to get to the root of the problem. Let's find the reason that you're doing these things so that your heart can turn and you can come back to God. And then this amazing thing happens. i got to take you back to the beginning. Can I take you back to the beginning? <laughs> David hears this story about this man who killed someone else's lamb. And the first thing David wants to do is punish him. Isn't that interesting? First thing he wants to do is punish him. But after David's heart is broken, David says this. Where is it? Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Did you see that? Before David repented, he just wanted to punish somebody else. But after his heart is broken... He ain't looking to punish anybody anymore. I got to tell you, I think the people who are the most inclined to punish are the most broken. And once you have been broken, you look at other people, and the last thing you want to do is punish them. And the first thing you want to do is, treat, is teach transgressors the ways of God. <laughs> you want to say, let me tell you what, I bet you in a bad spot. I've been in that too. And let me tell you what we're going to do. We're going to walk through this thing. And then you tell them this. You say, and you made a mess of things. I love Danny Silk as an author. He says, you made a mess. But we're going to help you clean up your mess. You see, that's the part we leave out so many times. Is we, we get people to a place where they cry and they're sorry for what they've done. And we put some things in place. But I think one of the things that we fail to do is to tell that person, Hey, you know what I'd like to do? You made a mess. But I would like to walk alongside of you. And I'd like to try to help you make you to, to make up for the mess. I'd like to help you clean up your mess. How many of you have ever made a mess and it was too big for you? And you would have loved to have had somebody to say, Hey, I'll come in and help you make up your mess. I'll help you clean it up. Yeah. And so now i got to turn because I asked you the question, is it, Are we ever too far gone? And I would say you have to qualify that. Hebrews 12, 11, if y'all can put that back up, there's a qualifier to those who yield to it. There's a qualifier in the question. Are you ever too far gone? You're not too far gone if you yield to God and you turn. But I want to be clear. If you keep saying no to God, there's going to be a problem. And I'll finish up in Romans chapter five, Romans chapter one. In Romans chapter one, Paul paints a picture, and he uses two verses that I think are so clear in this thing. Romans 1:24 says this: "Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts to impurity." 
God gave them over. And then in verse Romans 1, 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. And that scares me. And I think it ought to scare us a little bit too. Because here's what he's saying. If God comes to you with His Word and you don't turn, then you're going to move further in the direction away from God and toward a depraved mind and toward sin. And, and then there's probably going to be some consequences to your actions. But if you don't turn right there, if you're not careful, your heart will become even more dull, even more hard. And you'll start blaming everybody around you, even God, and now you're worse than when you started. And it'll get worse, and it'll get worse, and it'll get worse. To the place where the famous writer C.S. Lewis, he said this, and I've used it before, either you will say to God, Lord, your will be done, or God will look at you and say, child, your will be done. So He turns you over. And at that point, when you face the Creator on Judgment Day, you don't get to say, God, I, I, I can't believe you did this to me. Because God will look at you and say, I gave you what you wanted. I let you do what you wanted to do. And when you start doing what you want to do, the wages of sin is death. It will lead you further and further from me and further and further toward death. And so there is no one to blame but you because you wouldn't turn. So are we too far gone? <laughs> Never, if you would but yield to God. But if you keep saying no, God, you risk the place of your heart becoming so hard that you cannot find a place to turn back. I've met people. I've met people that have sinned for so long that I don't think they can have another thought. I think they've been turned over. I've, when I read that, I said, I think I've met some of them. I think I've met them. <laughs> but I want to make sure we don't, we don't do like David. So I've got to hurry up and finish this thing out. I want to make sure that we don't do like David and, and we think that our stuff's not so bad. <laughs> Everybody else's stuff is bad, right? Everybody else's junk is worse than our junk. And so... Inevitably, as well, if you run into a person that thinks they're too far gone, you'll run into this person and they'll say, I ain't so bad. I mean, I'm not a bad person. I, I, I try to do some good things and I, you know, I try to treat people fair. I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm definitely not like the person over here. You know, I'm not, I'm not like the people in jail and not like those depraved people. You know, I'm, I'm pretty decent. I ran across this story about two Jews. They go to a rabbi. One of them is so horrified by their sin. that They say, Rabbi, my sin is so great. He looks at the other guy and he says, well, what about you? And the other Jew looks at the rabbi and he says, well, you know, mine's not so bad. I mean, I've done some stuff, right? Everybody's done some stuff. I've done some stuff, but it's not really bad stuff. Just a lot of kind of little stuff. So the rabbi looks at the two Jews and he says, well, I'll tell you what, go into a field and get rocks the size of your sin and bring them back to me. So the one guy goes and gets as big a rock as he can find. <laughs> and he brings this thing back and he says, Rabbi, this is what it feels like. The sin is, is just enormous. It is it's so weighty. Here it is. 
Rabbi looks at the other Jew and he says, well, where, where's yours? And he says, well, I've got a bunch of rocks. You know, they're, they're, they're little, but I brought a bunch. Because, yeah, I do stuff, but it's just little stuff. It's not so bad. So there are all these rocks. They're a little different sizes. Rabbi says, okay. He says, guys, take those rocks and go dump them in a field. Just scatter them out. They did that. They come back to the rabbi. They said, now what, rabbi? He says, now go and get them. Wait, do what? Yeah, go, go get your sin. Go get your rocks. One guy said, I know where mine's at. Reaches down, grabs his big old rock, brings it back. He says, this thing's been ever before me. He says it before the rabbi. He looks at the other guy and he says, well, where's your sin? And the Jew looks at him and he says, well, I had a hard time. Why'd you have a hard time? He said, well, you know, I had a lot of rocks. They were little rocks, and I spread them out. I'm, I'm not sure if I got my rocks or somebody else's rocks. So it's just, you know, and, I, and I scattered them, and so I'm, I'm not sure if I, if I got them all. And the rabbi looks at the Jew, and he says, you know what your problem is? You don't realize that small things matter. Did you get that? You didn't have to worry about the one whose sin was before him. He knew exactly what he had done. But there are times we look at those people and we go, boy, I'm glad I'm not like them. <laughs> but in reality, what's been happening is every day we've been getting up and we've been saying no in little ways. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where God has been leading you to do something and you're like, mm, nah, mm, I don't want to do that. Not today. And, and then God tells you something else. You go, mm, nah, that's inconvenience. Is there anything else you want me to do, God? Because there's a lot of things I'd be glad to do, but I, I don't want to do that one. And before long, you've gone through an entire day. And you lived it for yourself, not for God. Saying no to God, little by little. Saying no to God. And what happens is you don't realize that little things matter. And, and so you, you get to this place where one day you wake up and you go, I don't know what happened. You ever done that? You wake up one day and you go, I don't, I don't know what happened. I can't hear God today. I don't feel Him. I don't know what happened. It feels like He's so distant to me. And somebody says, well, well maybe you did something and you, were, you, you disobeyed God. Can we go back to that place where you disobeyed God? And you're like the Jew with all those stones. You go, I don't know where to start. Because I've been in such a habit lately of just ignoring God that I can't even tell you where I've disobeyed. I haven't even heard His voice say anything lately. And I would say to you, Chris Eifert, will you come and play? Some of you may be here today and you came in with a big rock. And I would tell you that God wants to restore you. He wants to bring you to repentance. And He wants to, to help you to walk out cleaning up your mess. And there may have been somebody who walked in the room today and you thought you were doing just fine. <laughs> and you were ready for a nice message that was going to make you feel good about yourself and how God loves you. And I would say, yes, He does. But you might be worse off than everybody right here. You might be the worst one in the room today. Because you have been in a habit of saying no to God so regularly in so many little ways that you can't hear Him anymore. You see, your heart started out and it got just a little cold because you got away from the fire of God. But the further you get away from the fire of God, the more your heart gets cold. 
and then it begins to get hard and calloused, and then your neck gets stiff. And before long, you become a stiff-necked people. And I would say that maybe God is speaking to you through His Word and saying to you, you the man, you the woman, hear my Word and come to me, yield to me. And I will tell you, if you do, it'll be the greatest decision of your life. Because God wants you to live whole. He wants you to be perfectly whole. But if you keep saying no to God, your heart is going to get harder and harder. And it's going to get harder and harder to come to God. And so I would say, you know what? Today is a good day. Today's a good day to come to God. Today's a, a good day to turn it around. I know you can say, well, I can do it tomorrow. Yeah, you might. You might be able to do it tomorrow, but you might say no tomorrow. And if you do, it'll get easier to say no. So why don't we just come back today? You know who Christians are? Christians are the ones who are every day getting up, turning toward God and saying, yes, God, what do you have for me today? It's not even a sin focus, y'all. If, if, if we made it sin focused today, we messed it up. It's not getting you to focus on your sin. It's actually getting you to turn from your sin and look into God and saying, yes, Lord.